And if you have a Bible, open up with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. You got a pretty lengthy outline this morning, so I invite you to go ahead and open up to it. The fact that it's a lengthy outline doesn't necessarily mean that it's a lengthy sermon, but it is. So why don't you uh, go ahead and get that out and let's get started. And so Genesis 13, we're going to actually take two chapters today. And what we're going to do is this, is we are going to learn really three main points. I will give those to you from the very beginning, and then we will read through. There's going to be a lot of summary. There's going to be a lot of uh, heavy doctrine at the end, and it's going to be a great day. And so what I want you to see today is really three main points, and we'll look at them from the very beginning. We want to see what we learn from chapters 13 and 14 of Abram. What we learn of Melchizedek, you may have heard his name in the, in the reading and said, who is this guy? And we're, we're going to talk about him today. And so what we learn of Melchizedek and then thirdly, what that means for us who believe. So what we learn of Abram, what we learn of Melchizedek and what that means for those who believe. And when I say believe, I mean those who have their faith in Jesus, what that means for us. So that's what we're going to learn today. Lots of uh, lots of interesting points of the story, but we're going to really work our way to the end of chapter 14 for what the writer of Hebrews, I don't know if you caught it, but he said, it's time for us to move from the elementary principles of uh, Christ onto what he calls solid food. And when he says that, he's going to transition in the book of Hebrews to point us to the study of this guy named Melchizedek and who, what he teaches us about Jesus Christ. And so in a very real way today, we are gonna move pretty quickly to get to solid food. And so we're gonna need the Lord to do a great work on our hearts so that we receive his word. I like to refer to it this way. This is when you know that I have three kids, uh, even... <laughs> All of them at some point still have a diaper to pull up on, which we don't have to tell uh, anybody that, uh, but I just did. But we, we have three young girls. And so it's pretty easy for me to relate it this way, but we want to move as a church body. As we study this book, as we, as we study the book of Genesis, and ultimately as we look deep into the gospel, we want to move from what we're going to call sippy cups to steak dinners. Okay, that's what we want to do. And we're going to ask the Lord's help for us to be able to do that today. So join me in prayer before we get started. Father, we ask that you would do a great work in our hearts today, that you would allow us to have eyes that can see and ears that can hear your word today. And we pray that we would understand your gospel more clearly, that we'd be able to look more at the depths of your love that you have for us in Christ. And in doing so, we will be more transformed to the image of your son. We pray you do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. See a lot of you fanning. You're like, man, it's hot in here. And I just want you to know it is. <laughs> that's all I got for you. It's really hot. And uh, I think that's just called We Live in Alabama and it's July. But thank you for your patience uh, with us. And just, just fan if you need to. Do your thing. It's cool. So here we go. Genesis chapter 13. Let's begin with what we learn of Abram. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 to get going. So join along with me in God's word. It says, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that they had and with Lot, his nephew. And you'll remember last week 
they were in Egypt because of a famine and, and they, they went there and in the flesh, we see Abram do something that he ought not have done. And he told Sarah, hey, let's do this. You say to everyone that you're my sister and then they won't kill me. Okay, so let's go that route. And what happens is not good. And Sarai, actually, she's not Sarah yet. Sarai ends up being taken to the Pharaoh's house, put in the harem, and it takes God to come and rescue her and get them back on their way to the promised land. And so chapter 13, we're back. They are moving their way to where they began prior to the famine. And it says that uh, Abram is with his wife, all they had, and with Lot, that was his nephew, and they went into the Negev. That's the entry into the promised land. Verse two, now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. If you're curious of the connection there, you can go back to chapter 12 verses really four through nine and see where he did that the first time. Continuing reading, it says, And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. He worshiped God. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. I want you to first see several things that we learned about Abram. Uh, first is that we learned that he worshiped God, not wealth. He worshiped God and not wealth. We see that Abram, as he is coming in, to the promised land for the second time. And I believe a renewed man, I don't know how much he exactly learned of his uh, folly from, from the previous chapter, but, but he comes into the promised land and this time I believe renewed. Renewed in purpose, renewed in desire. And he at least is looking for the Lord again. Okay, so if he was acting in the flesh in the chapter before, now he is desiring the very presence and power of God. And so he brings his family in. And the very first thing that he does is he goes to the place where he originally taught to God. Now, I, I don't know all of your stories. I don't know all of your past or your testimonies. And, you know, the way that you have experienced the Lord working in your life over the years. But I would imagine that some of you have a similar testimony of that as Abram does. And it's that there was a time in your life where maybe you found yourself functioning in the flesh and you realize this isn't working. This isn't going to cut it. I, I cannot live out the life that God has called me to do in the flesh. I have to have his power and his presence. And maybe you had to take some form of exodus back to where you began. Back to where you met your first love. You know, I don't, I don't know your story. I, I just know that's what's happening here with Abram. And so he goes back to where they started. He goes back to where the altar had originally been built. And he went and it said that he called upon the name of the Lord. See, Abram had all kinds of goods. Like he was already pretty wealthy when he went into Egypt. But when he leaves Egypt, 
It, it was as if he plundered the Egyptians. And he leaves with what would appear to be everything. Like he has everything you can want. They have so much stuff that there's not even room for him and Lot to dwell together. We also learn a little bit about Lot here. Lot was able to be invited in to this blessing. Lot is not the the wisest man and we're gonna look at him in, in just a few minutes. But we see that even him who is very passive and foolish being connected to Abram brought him great wealth. But we notice the way that they respond to their wealth is very different. And Abram is a guy who comes back into the promised land. He is absolutely rich. He's wealthy, but he worships God, not his money, not his stuff. We secondly see, and it's similar, but he desired God's promises over the world's pleasures. Now, you probably get the idea here as we read the scripture, but they have gotten into this land. It's been promised to Abram, his family, uh, you know, they're going to get you, everything that's here is yours. Okay. But yet in a sense, nothing is his yet. If that may, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but he's walking into this land that God is saying, all of this is yours. But at the same time that he's walking into this land, he has lot with him. And also there are Canaanites and uh, parasites. Okay, you're like, who are these parasites? I don't know. Anyway, and so they're, they're all in the same place at the same time. Because it's not like, I mean, the Lord has promised it to Abram, but it's not like he has some kind of deed on it. And so what you have is there's all these people who have come into this land. And Abram and Lot have so many things. They have so much cattle and livestock that there's not enough grazing land for them both to be in the same place. And so Abram says, hey, Here's what we need to do. And he's going to show that, one, he's a really good leader in this situation, and he's very generous. He says, Lot, I want you to look around, and I want you to pick what direction you're going to go. And whatever direction you go, if you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. You just pick where you want to go, and you go and make you a life there. Take the stuff that's yours and go and enjoy your life. Okay? It's very generous. And he gives Lot this opportunity and I want you to see what happens. Look look with me at verse eight. It says, then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. Between, uh, no, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And look at this verse, verse 10. It says, and Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, 
what we see is when this opportunity is before Lot, Abram says, okay, you pick which direction you're going to go. It says that he lifted up his eyes and he saw. And we see this repeated so far, or we've seen repetition of this phrase throughout Genesis thus far. This is what we saw with Eve as she lifted up her eyes and she saw the forbidden fruit and she took it. This is what the sons of God, this is what they did. They lifted up their eyes, they saw the daughters of men and they took them. And now this is what we see here happening. We see, we see Lot, he lifts up his eyes and he sees, as we could say it this way, the forbidden cities. The places that he should not have gone. You say, well, Kobe, how, how can you say he should not have gone there? There was a land that was promised. And the land that was promised was the land of Canaan. And we're told, even though we don't know the exact location of these cities, I believe that this text here is clear, that Abram settled, it says in verse 12, he settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley. Lot chose outside of the promise. He looked at what brought pleasure to his eyes and he went with the natural man. He did what the flesh would tell you to do. He went to the place of pleasure rather than the place of promise. And so he goes. And we're told that he settled there and you get a little foreshadowing what's to come. It said, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So we're told really two main things about the land that Lot chooses. One, we're told that it's a wonderful place as far as water is concerned and land is concerned. It's evidently beautiful. But we're also told it's a place of great wickedness. He lifts up his eyes and that's where he goes. But what do we learn about Abram? We learn that Abram desires God's promises over the world's pleasure. Look at him. He is patient. He waits on the Lord to speak before he makes his way to the land. And it said, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, look at the phrase. The Lord says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all of the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also shall be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, I realize this may not seem that important to you, but it's very important for the rest of the book of Genesis. Abram desired the promise of God rather than taking the pleasures of the world. And what we see him do is he waits on God for God to lift up his eyes and to show him where the promise lied. He, he, he lifted up his eyes and said, this is what you should desire. This is what I give to you. You can have all of it. This is a very important land and we'll see the, the phrase, the oaks of Mamre and which are at Hebron. And I want you to understand something about that. This is a place known for blessing. This is a place known for promise. Hebron was the highest of all in altitude of the, the, the cities in the Palestine. It rested about 3,000 feet above the uh, sea 
was in the south central mountains of Judah and about two miles north of there was what we know as Mamre. This was the place that first acknowledged King David as the right king, the people of Hebron. This is the place where he first began to reign. He reigned for seven and a half years over Judah there in Hebron. And this is a place that we're going to see throughout Genesis that Abraham and Isaac, this is where they're mainly going to dwell. And this is going to be the burial location for all of the patriarchs and their family. So this is a very important geographical uh, location here in the book of Genesis. But Abram, he desires God's promises and God reassures him and leads him into the land. I want you to flip over or turn over to uh, chapter 14. And I want you now to see something else that we learn of Abram and that he fought for his family. Abram was a man who fought for his family. Now there's a lot to read here in chapter 14. So I'm going to summarize and give you the, the Colby Cliff Note uh, version. And here's what happens. Lot chooses a land that every other person in the flesh chose as well. Okay. He chose the big city with all the cool stuff and all the great things to do. And so he goes there and he was not the only one that desired it. There were several kingdoms at once that said, we want that land too. And so in chapter 14, we see some kingdoms unite for the purpose of taking over this land that Lot went into. And so they go in, they take over, they rule and reign, and they take Lot captive. And so Lot probably went there for the purpose of freedom, and yet he ended up a slave. And we're told that Abram got word that his nephew was in captivity And he took 318 men, trained them, and went and defeated the armies and got back Lot and his stuff. Amen is right. Abram is evidently what we might call a boss, okay? So he goes in and literally takes over, okay? There's probably never, that's never been said probably from the pulpit before, but he, he is a boss, okay? So Abram goes in and takes back Lot. He takes back all of the stuff from powerful kingdoms. I want you to look with me here. Look in verse 13 of chapter 14 and see it, see it happen for yourself. It says, then one who had escaped... This is one who escaped from the captivity, came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in, born in his house, 318 of them. Now, that's a big house. I mean, seriously, that's, that's big, 318, 318 of them. And they went in pursuit as far as Dan and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Habah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abram fought for his family. Now, Lot is a guy that we're going to see throughout really Genesis and specifically in chapter 19. He's a guy that really can't be trusted. 
Like he doesn't make good choices. We, we only see him really have two main actions in the book of Genesis. The first action we see is here in, or it was in 13, where he chooses the, the land ultimately of Sodom. So he picks to go and live amongst the wickedness of Sodom. The second act that we see is in chapter 19 when he offers up his daughters to the evil men of Sodom. So we have really only two main actions that we see with Lot. Neither are good at all. And they both tell us this guy is not trustworthy. This guy needs help. This guy needs Abram to look after him and care for him. And Abram is a godly man who loves his family. And Abram fights for Lot. Now, I don't know where you are and I don't want to spend too much time here, but we have teachable moments that come up. And so we should take those teachable moments and exhort the church body. And so one teachable moment here is this, is that many of us, either have been in our life people who were passive and foolish or we have been people who made many mistakes. In fact, all of us in this room are sinners by birth who needed the very grace of God to have any kind of relationship with him and praise be to him that he has sent his son Jesus so that we can know him and be connected to God through faith. But many of us have been in situations where it took someone fighting for us, even if it was fighting through prayer. It took someone fighting for us for the Lord to rescue us. It was someone who they fought and they spoke truth to us. Let's not forget that. As we have family members and friends and coworkers and people that are in our life that may look a whole lot more like Lot than they do Abram. They may be a people who they seem to flock to the places of slavery, not to the places of freedom. They flock to sin thinking that's where their pleasure will be found and yet it will only be found ultimately in Christ Jesus. But we need to be a people who like Abram, we fight for those who are in our family and we fight for our friends. And we do whatever it takes in the power of God to go to them and speak truth to them and pull them out of the slavery that they're in. And so I'm thankful for the example we see with Abram. I I can't, it's hard for me, and I don't know if you're like this, when I'm reading the Bible, sometimes it's hard for me to picture like what they looked like. You know, like I think of Abram as this really, really, really old man who was always like, why can't I just have a kid? You know, like I, like I think of him that way. And yet the Bible is not giving us that picture. It gives us a picture of a man who had great faith in the Lord, who evidently understood how to rally people. Evidently he was in the uh, power of the Lord, a warrior. And he went in and he fought for his family. Some of you in this room, you need to learn what it looks like to be a warrior for your family. Some of you don't fight for your family. You want other people to fight for your family, but you don't fight for your family. And I want to tell you from one man to another man, all the men that are here, if you have children, you need to fight for your kids. You need to fight for their faith. You need to fight for them in prayer. You need to fight for your wife. In the very power of God, you fight for your family, for the glory of God. And that goes for everybody in this room. We fight for our families.
thankful for that example. Last thing that we learn of Abram is though he is dysfunctional and I am giving you a heads up, we're gonna see some dysfunction come out. Much more of it is gonna come out when we read of those who come after him. But though dysfunctional, he was clearly growing in the wisdom, power, and grace of God. And I, I wish everyone would yell out an amen right here, okay? Because all of us have a level of dysfunction that we just need to realize is there. And if you don't realize it, I'll point it out to you. You're dysfunctional, okay? So like you really are, all of us struggle and we need to understand it's possible for God to grow us in his, in his uh, wisdom, power, and grace, even when we still struggle being dysfunctional. I'm so thankful for this. You don't have to get everything right for God to grow you. In fact, there's one day when we will be right and it will be when we are in the presence of God, we will be made in the very image of Jesus. Until that day, you're gonna have a level of dysfunction about you. Abram certainly is gonna show us he's not over dysfunction, but he is growing. He is growing in the wisdom, power, and grace of God. Give you a couple of examples of how he's doing that. The choices that he makes shows us that he's growing. The desire that he has for God's presence and to hear God's voice shows us he's growing. The generosity that he shows to Lot shows us that he's growing. The strength with which he fought, he's later gonna give credit to the Lord for that battle. He doesn't go in and say, man, I was so strong. I was so good at training them that we just went in and won. He didn't do what I did. He didn't go in and say, I'm a boss, okay? Like he goes in and says, it's the glory of God. It's God's power. Listen to Abram, not your pastor in this situation. Cause I just, I gave him, I gave him credit. He gives credit to the Lord and we see him bring glory and honor to God. Abram's a growing man. So we see several things that we learn from Abram. Now I want us to move to the guy that, that you're very curious about right now. I want you to see what we learn of Melchizedek. Of Melchizedek. Look with me at the, the text, starting in verse 17, about midway. And, and you'll, you'll see in, in this text that Abram has gone, he defeated the kings, he took back Lot and his possessions, and now they are on their way back. And it says that the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevev. That is the king's valley. Now, why, why would he do that? Why would the king of Sodom go to meet Abram? I mean, keep in mind, the king of Sodom was just defeated and then he had a man and his family come in and win everything back. Okay, so he's going to say, thank you. Thank you for recovering the kingdom that was once mine. Thank you. He's going to tell him that. But it says there's another king that's with him. And it says in Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord 
God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let let Anner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. So uh, what happens here is we have two kings that are going to approach Abram after he is walking away victorious from these once defeated kingdoms. The first king is the king of Sodom and we notice that he sneaks something in. He's a deceiver. and He may not realize it, but he does what we need to be aware of. And oftentimes after great victories of faith, we will see this happen. Little subtle uh, deceit, a little bit of subtle deceit will sneak in. And, and here what we, what we see happen is he comes and he goes, oh, thank you so much. Thank you for giving me back my kingdom. You can take the people, I mean, give me the people though, and you can have all of their stuff. You can take all of the stuff, but give me the people back as my possession. And he says, no, 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 that's not how this works. I gave my life to the Lord. I went and fought in the power of the Lord and I promised the Lord that I would take none of your stuff except for what was already theirs and I'm taking these people back with me. And so we see this king come in and, and he's, he's kind of sneaky with his language. But in contrast to him and his deceit, we have one that approaches as one that shows us righteousness. And it's this king Melchizedek. So what do we learn of Melchizedek? First, we learn that he is both a king and a priest. And I'll go ahead and go to the second part. And by his name and title, he is king of righteousness and king of peace. The very name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He is the king of Salem, which is more than likely Jerusalem. But this means king of peace. And so one is mysteriously going to enter into this story. He's going to come in what was unannounced with very little information given about him and walks up to Abram bringing out bread and wine. He approaches him for a meal and a blessing. We're told in the scripture here that he is a priest of God most high. Now there's all kinds of mystery that exists here in this text, especially if we were left only with the book of Genesis. Because with Melchizedek, we have one who the, the priesthood has not even entered in yet and into the, the Levitical law has not been formed. And yet we have one who is a priest of the God most high. Abram is going to give a tenth of the spoils to him. And he's going to receive a blessing from Melchizedek. Now, I want you to hold your place here in Genesis 14. I want you to flip over to the book of Hebrews chapter 7. I'm very thankful for the book of Hebrews all the time. I'm especially thankful for the book of Hebrews today. Because there's a whole lot that I'm not going to express to you and give you and show you because we don't have time. But I want you to know that the book of Hebrews is going to tell us 
why Melchizedek enters in there in Genesis 14. What is significant about him and what's very interesting is that he's going to give us a breakdown by the power of God. He's going to give us a breakdown on Melchizedek really from as much as what was not given from Melchizedek from what we actually received from Genesis 14. I'll show you what I mean by that. Look with me at chapter seven. It says, for this Melchizedek, verse one, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Well, that's easy, isn't it? sure each of you could stand up here and break that down before us. But here's what we see here from this text. We need to not miss the obvious. And the obvious thing is that this guy approaches and he by title is going to point us outside of himself to another. And so we're going to see the third point about Melchizedek is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Look at the definition there for type of Christ. It says an actual historical event or person that in some way symbolizes or anticipates a later occurrence, particularly an Old Testament foreshadowing of a New Testament event or person. A type points or shadows something that is to come. It points us outside of the one that we see to another, to one that is greater. And here in Genesis 14, Melchizedek is going to point us outside of himself to one who is greater than he, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's what the book of Hebrews is showing us. It says that he is by name, king of righteousness and king of peace. When we hear those phrases, those of us who understand God's word and understand who Christ is, we immediately think of Jesus. And that is what we are to do. That is what the very spirit of God points us to do and pushes us to do for us to consider and think on Christ when we see Melchizedek here. He is both king and priest and he points us to Jesus. This verse three, he is without father or mother or genealogy. This doesn't have to mean that, that he had no beginning or no end here. What, what we see and what I believe as your pastor, what, what I believe is going on here in the book of Hebrews is that it's saying that the word of God is telling us that, that in the book of Genesis, we have no genealogy given. He He comes in and then he leaves. It's like he's unannounced. Uh, He comes in unannounced and he leaves unannounced. We're, We're given no information about him. We're told nothing of his family and specifically connected to the Levitical priesthood. In the Levitical line, you would have to be brought in through family. And yet this is one who comes in by the very power of God. This is one who we see, in fact, the book of Hebrews is gonna say he had an indestructible life or he pointed us to that because we don't see a beginning to his life and we don't see an end to his life. His life should point us to the one whom he resembles. And it says that in the scripture that he resembles the son of God 
and he continues a priest forever. Now, Melchizedek is not mentioned again in the book of Genesis. He is only mentioned in two places. He's mentioned there in the book of Hebrews and he's mentioned in the Psalms. In the Psalm, I want to read for you what we are told. It's a messianic Psalm, which means it was a Psalm that was written to also foreshadow or point to the Messiah or Jesus. And so we'll we'll see, look in verse 17 of uh, Hebrews chapter seven. It says, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so we know of Jesus, he is going to come from a different order. He's not going to come through Levi. We know that Jesus came through the tribe of Judah. Jesus came uh, through the line of David. And so he is going to be one who is both a king. He comes from the king and he is one who also is going to be a priest. But he is going to raise up not in the order of Levi, but in the order of Melchizedek. And so As mysterious as this may all seem, I want to show you now what that means for us who believe. What does this mean for us who believe? Stay in Hebrews 7, but flip over to verse 25. This is really deep stuff and I I get it. You know, and if you read it enough times and you go through, you'll still be a little confused, but, but you will understand the significance. But as difficult to grasp as verses one through 24 of chapter seven may be chapter. I mean, verse 25 is very easy to understand and read. And it really takes the entire point of what we're getting at today. And it puts us, it puts it before us. Verse 25 of Hebrews chapter seven says this. Consequently, those, no, that's not at all what it says. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I want you to see that Melchizedek, he is comparable to the eternal high priesthood of the righteous son of God, who is truly king of righteousness and who truly brings peace to the world. What does this mean for us who believe? A, Christ is the ultimate high priest who has offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus Christ is the ultimate high priest. Genesis 14 is pointing us to something that there's no way Abraham could have understood. That all of us in the room now have the capacity to grasp. And it's that Jesus Christ, he's the ultimate high priest. He's the better Melchizedek. He's the one that offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25 tells us three things that we need to see. First is that Christ is able to save forever. Jesus Christ is able to save forever. Secondly, that he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus pleads for our behalf. He prays for us. He makes intercession for us. And what the writer of Hebrews is desiring us to know, what God himself desires you to hear today is this, is that the eternal intercession and salvation are for those who draw near to God. And we can see their balance, the balance here is that our eternal salvation rests on the fact that Jesus Christ is eternally making intercession for us. 
Does this make sense to you why this is beautiful? Is that Jesus being our high priest is telling us this, is that our salvation rests in that Jesus Christ is pleading for our behalf. He is pleading for us. Jesus is interceding for us now and for all of eternity. That is why we are safe. That is why we were in the Lord. That is why nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Look with me at Romans chapter eight. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. He is interceding for us today. Jesus is the ultimate high priest who's offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus offered up his own life so that you would not die, but you would live. Secondly, we see that Christ is the ultimate king who will forever rule and reign with perfect righteousness and grace over us in our lives. Jesus Christ is worthy to be drawn to. He is worthy for us to look at and run towards. He is one who we can trust with everything that we have. He is one who we should desire to reign and rule over our lives because he not only is our king, but he's a father who loves us. He's the ultimate high priest. He's also the ultimate king. See, we see that Christ finds pleasure in being with us and blessing his bride. As we saw Melchizedek enter into the scene with the bread and the wine for a meal to be had uh, with, with Abram, we understand this from scripture is that Jesus Christ, he came and he died and he rose from the grave so that we might have a relationship with him that we as Revelation 3 are told we might be able to, uh, he might come in and eat with us. He might dine with us. We can have a relationship with him. Yesterday was date day for, for me with my, with my family. Actually, Friday was date day with, with me with my family. I took uh, Lucy on a date and we went and we got some food. I took Annie on a date and we went and got some food. And then that night I took Catherine on a date and we got some food. And if you're like, man, you didn't take Hazel anywhere. You're right, I didn't. But I'm going to uh, and we'll get food. But here's the thing. I took three of my four girls out on a date. And what did we do? We, we ate, we sat around a table. We, we were able to grow our relationship together. When, when the Lord desires to show us his desire for relationship, he brings us to the table. In just a few weeks, we'll have an opportunity. First Sunday of every month, we as a church, we, we participate in the Lord's Supper. And if you're a member of the church body, we invite you to do that. And it is, we, we take the bread and we take the cup. And when we do that, we are saying God has a relationship with us because Jesus died and rose from the grave. We believe and we give our lives to him as we take this and as we drink this, because we are saying we believe what you've done for us. Christ finds pleasure in being with us and blessing us. He has relationship with us and he speaks promised blessing over his bride, the church. D, Christ, he is our victory. All of us were slaves to sin and yet Christ came and he defeated sin and death 
for us all. Christ is our victory. And lastly, what this means for us today is that Christ, he's worthy of our everything. As we see Abram give a tent to Melchizedek, the one who only pointed to the greater. We know that Christ has come. He is the ultimate high priest and king. And Christ calls us to give up not just a tenth, but he calls us to give up our whole lives, our everything to him. This is uh, wealth, this is time, this is talents, gifts, weaknesses, everything that we have to him. He calls us to see how everything that we have been given in life is from him and for him. And he calls us to honor him with our lives and all that we have. And so I want to ask Jennifer if you would come and as you come, just really call you today to what the book of Hebrews calls us to do. And it's in light of who Christ is, in light of what he's done, we're called to draw near to God in faith. Draw near to God through Jesus Christ who gave himself, who right now he intercedes for those who believe. So today, if you do not know Christ, I want you to know that Christ came, he died and he rose again and he is able to sympathize with you. He's able to understand what, who you are and what you've done and he's given himself for you to know the Lord. And so call you to come to faith. If, if you need an altar to pray, we invite you to come and to give your life to him. Jesus is right now interceding for you. Come and pray. If you desire to come and pray for another, how awesome is it that the church body can come and intercede for another as Christ intercedes for them? We have the gift to do that. So respond to the Lord's word today. Father, we ask you to do a great work through the power of your spirit today. Lift up the name of Jesus as we sing and worship. We pray in Christ's name, amen.